Hello, this is Dr. Jay Smith back again. It's been terrific having a special guest here. I've never really had Alan Craig on my show before, though I've known Alan Craig for many, many years. In fact, we were trying to guess it's 13 years that uh, we've known yeah, each other, yeah, that we've worked yeah, together. Yeah. Um, we've been on the ladder together at Speaker's Corner. Yeah, You've yeah. done debates for Fander, and also you have done debates on your own. But what's fascinating is, though you were not an Islamicist, this is not something that you have been taught. Uh, you don't have a degree in it. You know an awful lot about Islam, but it's not something that you have chosen to learn. Uh, and it's not something that I've imposed on you. You've kind of learned about Islam out of necessity, haven't you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, uh, it started off with the uh, campaign against the mega mosque. I knew nothing about Islam. I just thought this, this huge project which they were going to dump on our doorstep uh, about a mile from where I live and uh, in the east end of London, uh, I thought I'd need to learn a lot about Islam. And that's why I came into contact with you. You were a name to me before that. And I came and listened to you down at Speaker's Corner and then came to some of your tutorials and your teachings. And that was a great breakthrough for learning. And the rest is learning on the job. I mean, you can't not. Islam is the rising ideology across the Western world. I mean, go back 50, 60, 70 years, it was communism. You know, that was a rising political ideology. Right, right. It's now Islam. Uh, and really, is I guess, um, Alan, where it really came into our psyche was 9-11. Yeah. I think most everybody who's watching, who's watching us speak right now uh, can probably remember where they were when they first heard about these planes flying into those buildings. I know I was at a McDonald's sitting there eating with a friend, and all of a sudden they said the news break, and they said there has been an explosion uh, in the World Trade Center. We saw smoke coming out. There was nothing about a plane or anything. As we were watching, the second plane came in, and we saw it live as it went right into the building, and suddenly everybody just went quiet, including the newscaster, and he says, well, that's, um, that's different. <laughs> what, gonna, what should I, you can see, he was lost for words, and that's, that's been blazing into my subconscious. I remember as soon as I saw that, I ran out of McDonald's, I did pay my bill, I got into my car, I zipped down to our mission office, and I said, everybody turn on your TVs. Muslims are attacking. Now, how do I know that? How did I know that? There's no one had said Muslim, no one had said attack. I knew that because I'd been working in Islam by that time for a good, uh, a good almost 15 years. But what was more than that, it was fascinating because as I went around the world, I found suddenly everybody said, who are these people? Who are these Muslims that seem to be living on, on a totally different planet than the rest of us? But yet they're human like we are. They have this, you know, they have families like we do. They grow up in the same type of environment that we do. And I said, no, wait a minute. That last one's a little bit different. When I heard about the uh, Megamos project, which was in November 2005, it was uh, first came to public consciousness. And I thought, now I've really got to know about uh, Islam. And I remember spending the next six months absolutely full of emotion. That's when I first came and listened to you. Um, and I was reading, 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 trying to understand to, to bottom out my understanding of Islam. So I understood the difference between peaceful Muslims and non-peaceful Muslims, between uh, Deobandism, Broelwis, and so on, Sufism, and so on. Deoband is just a defined terms here, because those are words you and I know. What, to help the people, what are these two phrases? What do they mean? Well, br roughly, Broelwi and Deobandis are very strong in, in uh, South Asia, in India and Pakistan, and so on. The Broelwis are more Sufi, if that means anything. Uh, so mystical, it, uh, mystical. Yeah, yeah they're, they're likely to be more peaceful, I mean, less aggressive in their. In their, their view of uh, God Islam. is very much more imminent, and so yeah. they, they they have these peers, these 
holy men through which there are intermediaries between God and man, which is absolutely un-Islamic when you stop and think of it. It's, it's almost anathema because it almost raises them to a divine status, which is shirk. And the Deobandis don't like them for that very reason. The Deobandis are actually the ones that we probably understand better, most of us in the West, because that's orthodox Islam. That's the Islam that you see in this book, the text. And the interesting thing is the division in, in, in India and Pakistan between the Burwellwis and the, the Deobandis is over here in, in London. And I, when I was campaigning over the mega mosque, uh, uh, I was working with Burwellwis against the mega mosque. And I talked to them about it. And I'm surrounded by, in East End, I'm surrounded by mosques. In Newham, the borough of Newham, where I live, we have something like 30 mosques, okay? But that's where the majority of Muslims are in London. And what yeah. we're talking about a million Muslims in just London alone, a city of what, 14 million? Am I sure. correct? Sure. 10 or 14 million? Uh, Moving up towards 10, I think it's not. 10 in inner London, yeah. greater London, 14, but inner, inner London. So we're talking about a tenth of the population would be Muslim. The, the borough where I live is, um, I think at the last census, it was something like 46% Muslim. So almost half Muslim now. Yeah, it's, it's half, half Muslim, probably, I, probably more now. Uh, the particular area in there where I live personally now, um, it is clear majority, it's 55% Muslim. Right. And the white Brits like me are down to 5%. So, so you are a really small minority <laughs> you a small in minority. your own country. But the point I was going to make, Jay, and I think this is quite important, the difference between Borelwi and Diabandi, when I was campaigning against the mega mosque, I got alongside these uh, Borelwi um, Muslims. I got to know the president quite well. And I talked to him, trying to understand what was going on in my own backyard and why is it they were campaigning with me against the, the mega mosque. And they said, well, of all the 30-odd mosques in Newham, my borough there, uh, four or five are Burwellwi, and the rest, are, the, the rest are all Wahhabi. And he, Wahhabi. Spat, he spat the word out. He yeah. literally spat the word out. He now said, they're all Wahhabi. He said, I said, we don't get on very well. But let's, yeah. let's define terms. To understand what we mean by Wahhabi, you need to go do it. Let's do a quick history lesson. The, the man You're who, the man for it, Jay. <laughs> uh, I'll do that real quickly. I'll try to be as, quick, as brief as possible. The man who really created... Uh, the, the, who defined Islam, not created it, that would be Muhammad himself, but the man who defined Islam is named as Ibn Taymiyyah, and he was living in 1300 AD. Yeah. And he said that to be a good Muslim, you must read this book here, the Quran, but to understand this book, now you've read this book, it doesn't make much sense, does it? There's no complete, well, there's one complete story, and that's about it. It jumps all over the place, there's no chronology, there's no transitional phrases to help you from story to story, so you need someone to model it, and that's Muhammad himself. So he said, read the book, follow the man, the book and the man, the book and the man. That's my phrase. I've, I've added, that's, I've kind of, it's become one of my token phrases. The book and the man is really what defines Islam. Now, 200 years later, there was a man in Germany that said much the same thing. His name was Martin Luther. To be a good Christian, <laughs> sola scripture, read this book and follow the man behind it, Jesus Christ. So they follow the book of man. We follow a bigger book, a bigger man. I keep it bigger for that reason, so you know which is the bigger, the better. And a man book. is also God. <laughs> there you go. A man is also God. Yeah. Is also God. So much bigger man. <laughs> now that was picked up in 1700 in Arabia by name uh, Ibn Wahhab. Uh, Wahhab was an Arabian himself. The same time that he was learning and being taught all about Ibn Taymiyyah from 1300. So now we're in 1700. 400 years later, there was another man named Wahihullah from India, from Bihar, who was studying Ibn Taymiyyah 
Go back to the book modeled by the man. He goes back to India. Wahab stays there in Arabia because that's his country. He, he makes friends with this family called the Ibn Saad family who are have all kinds of tribal conflicts around them. They destroy all the other tribes, take over the whole central part of Arabia called the Hijaz. And so now they control the place really where the prophet lived and where also Mecca. They control the two holy mosques. But they needed to have theological legitimacy. So that's why they brought Wahhab as their scholar, as their cleric, as their, their uh, sheikh. And because of that legitimacy, that has been retained since 1700. That, therefore, is now grown and grown because, as you well know, the Ibn Saud family discovered oil. And once you discovered oil, you get immensely wealthy. So today there are about 5,000 of these princes that belong to the Ibn Saud family, but they have no legitimacy unless you have Wahhabism. And so what they're doing is they're using their oil to spread this Wahhabism all over the world. That's why he spat. Well, Wahhabism has, is now in two major locations. One of it has gone back to India from Wahihula who was teaching in Bihar, started these madrasas that the British came across. You people came across all of his talibes, his disciples, and you pushed them all across India over to the west, up into the mountains. Well, actually, they fled up into the mountains to get away from the British. They move up into Waziristan, into what is today Afghanistan. That was all part of their, uh, the, part of the colonies. But what was fascinating, meanwhile, that was coming down, that same Wahhabism was coming down into Egypt. Let's jump to the 20th century, because there are two big names that have come out of those two branches. The one over here in India, well, there's two names in India that have taken Wahihula's teaching, all based on Ibn Taymiyyah. One is named Ibn Ilyas. We talked about him in an earlier episode, didn't we? Yes, in the 1920s, right. 1924, he created the Tabrikli Jamaat, the TJs. We call them TJs for short. They're all over the world in 120 countries, 80 million membership. At about the same time, in Deoband, which is a city real close to where I grew up. I used to go through Deoband. We used to stop there, and we always got tea there. And I could see these big uh, madrasas on either side of the railway tracks. I never really took much attention to them because I didn't realize their significance. Muhammad Ibn um, Maududi, Ibn Dam Maududi, was there in Deoband. And in 1947, when India got its independence, he jumped out of India, fled India, and went over to West Pakistan because that became an Islamic state. Uh, Ali Jinnah is the man that started that state on that premise. And he started what we call the Jamaat-e-Islami. The Jamaat-e-Islami is another group, much like the Tabakli Jamaat. Both of them start from the premise that we need to go back to the book modeled by the man. Well, who started that? Ibn Taymiyyah. That's been around since 1300. This is nothing new. And I've been trying to tell people, wake up. This didn't just happen at 9-11. That <laughs> didn't just happen on, at 7-7. That's the number we give here in Britain for the, July 7th, 2005, when, what, 22 people was, 52 people were killed. Yes, uh, now, that didn't just happen here in Britain at that time. This has been going on for, since the 1300s. Uh, that, those two groups in India created the two of the most the largest and most influential radical groups. Now, let's go with the Jamaat Islami because they went up into Waziristan. They took over all these madrasas. And their students were called Talibes, which is the word for students in both Arabic and Urdu. The Talibes became the Taliban. The Taliban then moved into Afghanistan throughout the Russians and set up their own Islamic State. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, simultaneously over in uh, uh, Egypt, you had Hassan al-Banna. Hassan al-Banna, what was he teaching? Wahhabism. 
There's where the Wahhabism comes in. But he wanted to bring it down to the laymen. He wanted to bring it down into the cities. He wanted to bring it down into these, the poor. And he used an awful lot of Christian uh, models. Fascinating. He used missionary examples of starting up, going in with clinics, going in with schools. Did very much what he saw the Christian missionaries doing. His favorite student was a man... Uh, man, man Said Qutb. Said Qutb had memorized this book by the time he was 10. Small kid. Yeah. He memorized the yeah, entire yeah, yeah, Quran, yeah. the size yeah. of our New Testament. Yeah. His favorite student was a man named Ayman Zawahidi. Ayman Zawahidi was a medical doctor, Egyptian. Uh, he was put into prison. Said Qutb was executed in prison by Abu Nasr yeah, in about, yeah. 1966. Ayman Zawahidi then decided that he, uh, that he would not stay in Egypt, so they threw him out, exiled him, and he bumped into a man named Osama, Osama bin Laden, who had a lot of money. Not much education, but a lot of money. Ayman Zawahidi had all the education. And what was his education? Wahhabism, based on Wahhab. Who got it from? Ibn Taymiyyah. <laughs> Nothing new. This is the same, and they're saying exactly the same thing. Whether you go to the Tabikli Jamaat, whether you go to the Jamaat Islami, whether you go to the Muslim Brotherhood, starred by Hassan al Banna, the theologian was Said Qutb, who wrote the book himself. He was the one that wrote In the, Sh uh, the Shadow of the Sword. He is the one that wrote the treatise. That's nothing more than a exegesis on the Quran, where verse by verse by verse. Go and read it, it's up online. It is the textbook for all Wahhabis and also radical Muslims. Now, can you see then why the Tabikli Jamaat is based in hundreds of years of tradition? The Jamaat Islami, the Pakistani side of it, is based on hundreds of years of tradition. You're up against something that's been around for hundreds of years, Alan. Now, knowing that, let's get into the present problem. And that is, if you believe that everything comes from one book, modeled by one man, when you look at this book, what does this book say about women? And what does it say, especially about those who are the kufar? Well, uh, they, they teach them take t as, as captives, really, aren't they? They're women, I mean, well, a whole area which I've studied is, is Sharia law and Sharia courts in this country. And women are effectively second-class citizens. Muslim women are worth only the value of a... a, a two Muslim women are worth the value of one Muslim, Muslim man. If you're talking about non-Muslim, it takes four Muslim women in, in legal terms, to be the value of one Muslim man. And that's uh, all right of the Quran. Uh, that, that, that. You can get that verse after verse after verse. Let me just go through these verses real quickly. Sure, yeah, yeah. And maybe we could put these up as a subtitle if we have time. But if you just start with ch two chapters, chapter 4, verse 3, that's what you're talking about, that a man can have up to four wives. So already in marriage, you see that there's inequality. To verse 11, just a few verses later, it says that at death, when a ma father dies, the boy gets twice the inheritance of the daughter. So already in death, she's half the her of her brother. Uh, in verse 24, a few verses on, it says that the man can have as many women as his right hand possesses. That means slaves of war, above and beyond the four wives. Ten verses later, in verse 34, it says that a husband can beat his wife. And the word is daraba, which is to scourge. Come to chapter 2, verse 282, and it says that in court, the testimony of Two women is equal to that of one man. That's what you were quoting, that their testimony. And when asked why by Aisha, when asked Muhammad why that was the case, he says because women are less intelligent and more disobedient. Ooh, I love that one. Let's try to put that look for equality here in the United, <laughs> United Kingdom. If you go to chapter 2, verse 223, and this is a terrible verse. It mentions that a man's wife is nothing more than her tilth. It is his tilth, sorry, his tilth. And that he may plow his wife sexually anytime he wants. She has no control over her own body. It's owned by the husband. And then you go to chapter 2, verse 230, 
And this is the halal of marriages. It's fascinating. It says that if a man wants to divorce his wife, he just has to say it three times. But if after he said it the third time, he decides he wants her back, he doesn't do anything. She has to go down to the mosque. She has to pay in Britain now. The price is 1,200 pounds. The imam will then take her to an anteroom where there's a bed, and he will have her sexually. He has to penetrate her, has to come out to the main room and sign a certificate of divorce before she can go back to the first husband. That's called a halal marriage, what he, she had with the imam. Now, the woman has to pay the penalty for the man's decision. The woman has to then have sex with a total stranger. How in the world does that, what does that say about a woman's body? And what does that say about the worth of a woman? Mm -hmm. Can you then understand, when you look at the Quran, when you see all this image of woman, can you then understand what we're gonna talk about next? And let's talk about that, these sex grooming gangs. What are they? And where are they found? Help me here. Because those of us who live in the West, I've never heard of this before. When I go to America, when I go down to, uh, uh, I went to Ghana last year in Togo, I went to Zambia, they couldn't figure out what I was talking about. What are you talking about? I said, there's just something that's really happening in Europe. We are hearing about them, but it's been going on for about 20 years. What are these gangs? Who are they? Uh, to put it in context, I think my view would be it's the worst social crime uh, for 200 years in this country. Uh, it's appalling. Uh, it's for more than 20 years, probably for 30, maybe even 40 years. Let's trace back to the 1980s. Predominantly Muslim, ga predominantly Muslim gangs of men have been uh, raping, grooming and raping underage girls, non-Muslim girls, on an industrial scale. In fact, almost all white girls, right? Well. Uh, yeah, there's quite a lot. There's happened a lot to Sikh girls as well in this country as well. Back well, in the see, day. I had not heard this. Oh. I heard it was all white girls. Oh, okay. no, 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 no. Okay. Sikh girls, Hindu girls, and so on. I mean, but not Muslim girls. Uh, but not Muslim girls. The, the, we do not know. There may well be abusive Muslim girls going on with the Muslim community, within the Muslim community. But come we don't know it. about that. Uh, what we do know about is when they do it outside the Muslim community. And there is no doubt, overwhelming that they're English girls, uh, but there have, have been quite significant numbers of non-English non girls, non-white girls, uh, who, have been, who, have been, um, who have been raped and so on. Basically what has happened is it's, um, it's a whole grooming process. It's a, a technique that's known as a lover boy uh, process, whereby, whereby uh, good-looking young Muslim men will hang around outside school, aged perhaps 19, 20, that sort of age, will hang around outside schools where school girls are coming out, school girls aged 13, 14, 10, younger than that, 10, 11 Teenagers. So, so, yeah, but young teenagers, I mean not 18 or 19, they're young teenagers. Um, and, uh, and they will, you know, sitting outside of school, typically sitting outside of school, got a smart car, you know, and a nice Mercedes and something, and you see four giggling girls coming out of school, hey girls, you want to come for a ride? And they climb in all giggling and think it's all great fun and so on. And that starts the process of grooming, and they get to know them and befriends them and takes them to parties and all that sort of thing, they're having the wildlife. And then it starts introduced to alcohol, then they're introduced to drugs, and then they bring along an uncle and so on. And you get this, uh, way whereby these girls who overwhelmingly are underage, uh, the, the, the age of consensual sex only starts at 16 in our country, okay? We're talking about girls aged 13 and 14. Legally, you cannot have sex with them, okay? But these girls were brutally raped, typically, and I've, 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 I've met girls like this, I've talked to their families and so on, typically 
A girl could be taken above a curry shop. A girl aged 13 could be taken above a curry shop. Curry shop, you mean a place to go and eat. Well, you go and, yeah. eat, you go and buy curry, you know, just on the, on the high street there. Uh, or, or go to a taxi shop where you get a cab from and that sort of thing. You're taken upstairs, the bedroom upstairs, and she could have 10 men penetrate her in one night, have sex with her in one night. And this has happened time and time again. I calculate... I calculate something like a quarter of a million, 250,000 underage girls have been raped and abused like this over the last 30 or 40 years. It's been done on an industrial scale. And what is more and worse is that the authorities frequently have known about this happening. So the girls have gone to the authorities. Sorry? The girls have gone to the girls the have gone to the, the most famous one, which everybody in, certainly in the UK knows about, is in Rotherham. Now, Rotherham is a town in the north of England, in Yorkshire, in the north of England, population about 200,000, a Muslim population about 20,000, something like that. It's hit global headlines because there's been an investigation, a formal investigation, uh, back in 2015, something like that. And the formal investigation, something known as the Jay Report, came out, fun enough. No, sorry, Professor but I had to use my name for that. <laughs> Professor Jay, uh, she did a report, and she reckoned that 1,400 girls in this one town, four, minimum 1,400 girls, had been raped and abused by these out gangs. Out of 250,000. Out of 200,000 200, total population, okay, 14, of all ages, okay. Wow. 20,000 Muslims, so let's say 10,000, say 8,000 Muslim men, okay, of aged over 16 themselves. And it is absolutely extraordinary. And this has been replicated all over the country. But what is absolutely clear, Jay, is that in Rotherham, as indeed in Rochdale and elsewhere, the authorities were given full information. I have met the whistleblower in Rotherham. Her name is Jane Senior. She's written a book, which is really well worth reading, called Broken and Betrayed by Jane Senior. You can get on Amazon. Say it one more time. Broken and Broken betrayed. Broken and betrayed by Jane Senior. Jane is spelled J-A-Y-N-E, Senior, as opposite to Junior. Uh, and you can get easily on Amazon. Read that book. It's absolutely horrifying. She ran a sexual health clinic in the centre of Rotherham. Uh, her job was to, it was, it was part of a government programme to reduce uh, teenage pregnancies across the country. So they set up these sexual health clinics to tackle sexual health for youngsters. Yeah. Okay? So it was run in the middle of Rotherham. And she these girls who are being raped would come to her. She knows almost all those 1,400 girls who have been identified in a separate report. She knew them over years. She was there 2008, 2009, 2010. Uh, these girls would talk to her. She built their confidence. She didn't judge them. She built their confidence. And she's, she could tell you when the girls have been raped, the name of the rapist who'd done it, the relationship between the rapist and the other relationships, uncles, nephews, and so on and so forth. She could tell you the- These were men that were paying for it, or were they just raping them? <laughs> they were bribing them. So they'd give them, take, give them party, they'd give them alcohol, give them drugs, and so on and so forth. Sometimes they'd give them a 10 pound note or something for it. Yeah, they'd, they'd pay for it. Um, and and she, she had all the information, the car number plates of the men who were doing it, the whole, all the information, she had it all on file. And she'd handed over the South Yorkshire Police and she'd handed over to Rotherham Council Social Services. And the best she got back was, um, you mustn't name the fact they're Asian. She didn't refer to them as Muslims, she just said they're Asian men who are doing it to predom predominantly Asian men doing it to predominantly white girls, almost entirely in Rotherham white girls. She gave the information to them and they just said you shouldn't use the word uh, Asian. But you've got to understand that what's going on on here, uh, two, two driving issues that have, have made it happen in Rotherham but also across the country. Firstly, political correctness. 
political correctness. Political correctness you means if you name. if you accuse a Muslim of or a Muslim community of doing something, you'll immediately be accused of being racist. They're a protected, an ethnic minority is a protected minority, so you'll be accused of being a racist. So the authorities were quite clear, we're not going to say this because that's, it's sheer racism. You're saying it's Muslims doing it to white girls, that's racism to say that. But you can't even say it, <laughs> so no one did say it. The MPs were scared for their own uh, chairs. Oh, yes, absolutely. The, the council, I mean, what, what about the police? What were they scared of? I mean, were they, why were they so reticent? They're, 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 they're built into, they're taught political correctness. They're taught that actually you've got to be very careful with ethnic minorities. They're a protected characteristic in our country. So ethnic minorities are protected, but especially Muslims. Islam has a, uh, is now a protected status, effectively, in, in our society. We're going to get so into that in another episode, because I don't want to get into it now. But, we we but, do need to so the, run the, this up. There are, there are two factors. I mean, it's huge, absolutely huge. Two factors in Rotherham, but also right the way across the country. Firstly, critical correctness. You're being racist if you accuse Muslim men of, 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 of raping white English girls. And secondly, most of these towns are run by the Labour Party, northern industrial towns run by the Labour Party. And the 85% of Muslims vote Labour. So the Labour authorities, Labour right. authorities don't want to upset the Muslim community and go and accuse These them of raping white girls because they'll, they'll lose their voter base. Right. Those two are huge powerful. So you can say that political correctness and self-interest has caused thousands upon thousands upon thousands of English girls to be abused. Well, you're saying a quarter of a million, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Champion, who's, who's a relatively new MP for, for, for Rotherham, said they could be, the figure could be up to a million. It, it, it's goodness. absolutely massive. Over the last 40 years or so, it's... it's okay, Rotherham, give me some other cities. I mean, are these... What are, I mean, it's not just Rotherham. No, Rotherham, Rochdale, Oxford, Bristol, Blackburn, Burnley. I could go on forever. I mean, all the towns up there. Uh, it, the, the people, there's, there's a, a book that's really, really worthwhile getting. Okay, another book. You've got that one by Broken and Betrayed by Jane Senior. Another one you can also get on Amazon is called Easy Meat. Easy Meat by a guy called Peter McLaughlin. Easy Meat, just put it in there, Peter McLaughlin. Get that. It gives you all the facts and figures. He's also got a website. He updates the website all the time as, as new cases come up. So it's in that book, and it's well worth See, now, think. I've been here all these years. I haven't heard what you're just telling me. I feel kind of shamed that I haven't kept up with all this. Just get that book. It, it is beyond sordid. It is beyond bestial. It is simply under... But the authorities won't deal with it. They still won't deal with it. It's still, it's still okay. going on in Rotherham today. Of these men, have they gone to court? Have oh yes, at last, at last, we're getting significant numbers and the police have, at last, probably because of the Jay report which came out in 2014. Um, so it's been it up for five years. So, it, But they're beginning now to get them. So you, you're seeing in, in newspapers, they, you, they have galleries of, picture galleries of, of, of Asian men who have been arrested and then convicted. And when you say Asian, a lot of people don't know what you mean. Most people in America, when you say Asian, they think Chinese. Yeah. Asian here means Pakistanis, Indians, and Bangladeshis. Yes. But most of these are Pakistanis. They're mostly Pakistanis, but there's also others as well. And we can yeah. say it on this Iraq, show. Iraqis do it. And but so you so cannot so. write this, can no, you? No, no. Well, I mean, you, if I do say this, and immediately you're Islamophobic. You're clearly a racist bigot. You're Islamophobic. You've got something against the Muslims. Isn't it's, that fascinating? We don't have anything like that, Christianophobic. That's where the, dis the, the, the political discourse has got to. If you criticize Islam, if you criticize Muslims, you're Islamophobic. You're a bigot. I want to pick this up in the next episode because we need to um, bring this down. What can we do about this? Let's talk to the people. Uh, what can we do uh, about this particular problem with these grooming gangs? What would you like to see people do? If you read the stories of these girls, you will feel ill. 
You'll feel it. It is unbelievable. I've met families of the girls. I've met the girls themselves and so on. It, you, it is utterly, utterly sickening. The barbaric things that have happened to them alone in a room with a dozen men or whatever it happens to be is barbaric. But I really suggest if you want to understand the problem, get the book called Easy Meat by Peter McLaughlin. You can get it on Amazon, Easy Meat. And also the book by Jane Senior called Broken and Betrayed. Those two would be foundational books to begin to understand the nature of the problem. But it's not just a problem here in the UK, Jay. It's not a problem. Uh, Peter McLaughlin's book point, points out exactly the same model is happening in the Netherlands, in Holland, in, in, in Europe, exactly the same. Except it isn't Pakistani men there, it's Moroccan and North African men. And the same is happening in Finland. Finland, little Finland, right on the borders of Russia. Go there, it's happening in the second city of, of Finland, and over there they're Arab men mm. who are doing it. And the connecting th thing all the way through is they all come from a Muslim culture. They all come from, from that. That's all based on this book. How this trashes women and makes them nothing more than easy meat. That's a good word for what we read here. Sure. It's been a hard, this has been an episode that's not the, this is not the best way to, to end it. But the beautiful thing I do know is, my goodness, I'm so glad we don't have this kind of problem with the Bible. I'm so glad that God of the Bible loves women and genders women, ennobles women. And we're to protect our women, to love our wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5, 25. I'm so glad I can come back to this and see that women are equal with me, that there's no difference between man and woman, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, we're all equal in Jesus Christ. We're going to end on that note. It's been a difficult episode. We're going to be moving on into what is Islamophobia all about. Stay with us. This is Jay and Alan Craig here in London. Over and out.